What a wonderful celebration we had last week. So, so delightful. So much joy. We got to proclaim along with believers around the world that this thing, that death does not have the last word. It's a glorious thing. And it was at that moment, just, just at the moment when Satan and the enemies of God seemed to have won. They, they seemed to have defeated this author of life. The curse on mankind, the curse seemed to overpower the author of life himself. Just at that moment, Jesus, the conquering king, broke through. He broke the curse. He broke it. And yet, as we saw last week, even on the day, uh, Mary Magdalene, we looked at her experience, she had become so transfixed by the loss of her hope that when she saw an empty tomb and when she heard the message of uh, resurrection from angels, that Jesus was risen, what did she do? She went looking for a dead body. Where have you put the body? She said to Jesus. Disappointed expectations can blind us to Christ right in front of us. And then later that evening, on the same day of the resurrection, we, we didn't look at this, but you know, I think many of you know the story, Jesus appeared to the disciples as they were behind locked doors. But Thomas wasn't there among, among them. Thomas wasn't there because Thomas was troubled. Thomas was bitter. He had disappointed hopes. His hopes, once so sweet, had caught in his throat. He choked on his hopes. He choked on his disappointed expectations. And he had withdrawn. He pulled even away from those who shared the same experience. So painful was it to him. And so he wasn't with the disciples that Easter evening when Jesus came to bring peace to that frightened fellowship, that uh, fragile, unfaithful fellowship. And he, you know, even when Jesus came to them, they had all abandoned him, and yet he still he called them brethren. He said to Mary Magdalene, go tell my brothers. They'll see me. And Jesus had blessed them, but Thomas missed it. He missed it. And not only did he miss it, <clears throat> you know what he did. That's why we call him Doubting Thomas. He refused to believe anything about it. He heard it. He heard about it with his ears. He saw a completely changed community, right? When he saw his friends after they had seen the Lord, what do you think their countenances were like? He left them crushed. He saw them jubilant. He saw them just joyous. He refused to believe his ears. He refused to believe his eyes. Disappointed expectations can blind us and can deafen us to Christ right in front of us. And it isn't that the gift has been withheld. It's, that it's not the gift we wanted. 
there is the gift, but that is not what I asked for. That is not what I expected. That is not what I wanted. Well, what happened during those three days of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection is that it's like an icon. It's like a picture of universal things. And one of them is that when the Lord Jesus offers grace, he requires a response. The offer of grace requires a response. Uh, there is no neutral response to a move of God. When, when the Almighty One moves towards one, a person either uh, draws inward and hardens, turns away from that move of God, or opens, receives, and grows. You can't, there's not a neutral way of dealing with the Almighty One when He moves. So as we return to our walk through the Gospel of John, which we have, we began in Lent, uh, we see this universal truth. As Jesus offers life, He moves towards two very different men. And we see this truth, that when the Lord moves, there must be a response. And that our disappointed expectations must be dealt with. Several weeks ago, uh, we followed Jesus on his return to Galilee. He'd been down in Jerusalem at a feast, and then he went through Samaria on his way back to Galilee. And there he met this Samaritan woman by the well. And he completely changed her life. She was desperately thirsty for genuine love. And when she realized that God was loving her despite her shame, she opened. She received his love. And then, and then, in Galilee, he's gone through Samaria, just had that experience, uh, at the end of chapter 4, so please turn, we're at the end of chapter 4. Jesus has come back to Cana, where he had turned the water into wine, and an official, this is uh, a Jewish official, this is probably someone working for Herod the Tetrarch uh, in Capernaum, hears that Jesus is over in Cana, and he runs over because his son is on the point of dying from a sickness. This interaction is one of four very personal interactions that uh, John records from Jesus' first six months of ministry here. Uh, and John had set this up. He, he had set up these, uh, these four interactions at the end of chapter 2 when he said, Jesus needs, needed no one to bear witness about a man, for he himself knew what was in a man. And then John goes and shows. Let me show you. Here's four different interactions. How he shows he knows what's in someone. And that's what he responds to. It's one of the clear themes of John's gospel. Jesus knows what's in you. So It's not just Jesus then knew what was in a person. Jesus knows what's in you. He knows what's in everyone. And he still loves still loves, and he still offers grace. He knows the stuff you think about. He knows the malice 
He knows the resentment. He knows the, the shame, the disappointments. He knows all of it. And still he loves you and offers grace. So this official, working for Herod, runs over to Jesus and he asks Jesus to come and the Lord says a remarkable thing. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. That seems to come out of left field. Why, why does he say that? The man is asking for him to come heal his son. Jesus says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Like Nicodemus, like the woman at the well, Jesus knows this guy. We can't forget that. This is, we've been set up to read in this way. Jesus knows this guy. He knows what's in there. And it seems like from the time that rumors hit Capernaum, John the Baptist has declared the Christ is here. This guy, Jesus from Nazareth, he's doing all kinds of stuff. Listen to the stuff he's saying. He's healing people. This guy has been saying, unless I see, unless I see it myself, I will not believe it. Unless I see the signs and wonders, I, I won't believe. There have been testimony. People have come to him saying, look, I've been changed. But this guy has his own set of expectations. The Christ will look like such and such. The Christ will be from here or there. Perhaps he has notions of certain signs. We don't know what his specific expectations were. But he sounds a lot like Thomas, doesn't he? Unless I see the holes in his hands, unless I put my hand into his side, I will not believe. He's got the evidence of changed lives. His own friends changed. Unless I see it myself, unless I put my fingers in the holes in his hands, I will not believe. Dis the power of disappointed expectations. It's tremendous. And this man is disappointed in Jesus as the Christ. This is not who I wanted. So how amazing then what happens? It's not unlike when Jesus touched the tender place in the Samaritan woman. In her heart, Jesus touches the point of resistance in this man, his pride. When, he, when Jesus says to him, you, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The man knows those words have passed his mouth. How many times he said those same things, and now Jesus says, I know you. I know I know. I know you set terms for your faith. I know you won't believe in me. You said so. Jesus reminds of him, these were your terms. So unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And this man is humbled. He can't argue. Notice, he doesn't argue with that can't that's what he'd said 
maybe many times. But God has given this man a gift. Desperation. He's given him desperation. A gift of legitimate, desperate need so that he's willing to let go of his expectations, whatever they were. And now he's, he's willing simply to ask Jesus to intervene. I said all that. Sir, would you please just come? He's asking. He's asking with faith. He's asking with trust in Jesus. Desperation has led him to trust Jesus. Desperation has led him to let go of his expectations of Jesus. How do we know this? We know this because when Jesus says, go, your son will live, he goes. He had asked Jesus, come and heal my son. And Jesus says, go. Your son will live. He is trusting Jesus as one who speaks for God. He's not as a wonder worker. There is no sense here that Jesus waved his hand or said some magic words. He just reassures the guy. Your son will live. I, I have a direct line to the father. Your son's going to live. The man believes him. Because he goes. And the one who demanded a sign does not get what he expected. He doesn't get Jesus coming and laying hands on his son. He doesn't get Jesus coming and saying, uh, fever, be gone. He gets much more. He gets much more because he trusts Jesus. He got faith in Jesus as the word of God. And his son is healed. Now the fourth of the, those interactions that John set up by Jesus knew what was in a man. He didn't need anyone to testify about it. The fourth follows right on the heels of that one. Someone who is in desperate need, lets go of their expectations, trusts him and finds faith in him. Right on the heels, Jesus goes back down to Jerusalem to a major feast. He goes purposely to a place of desperation. There under these shady porticos, there are two pools. This, this has been found. Archaeologists have found the pool of Bethesda. It's uh, two pools. There are five covered walkways. One runs right between them. Colonnades, porches. And there, lining the porches, leaning against the columns, People with no hope, or not much hope, blind, crippled, paralyzed. And what hope they have hinges on this occasional, we don't know how occasional, visit of an angel to these pools where the water is stirred and whomever can get into the pool while it's stirred will be healed. Jesus works his way through the crowd, and he passes many of them, many lying there, you know, weaving through. You can see stepping over. He literally has to step over legs and arms. 
And he comes to a certain man who, we're told, has been infirm for 38 years. Does that mean he's 38 years old? No. no. Did this come along after childhood? We don't know. But as Jesus approaches him, John highlights, he says this, Jesus knew that he had been there a long time. It's a way of flagging, saying, this is Jesus who knows what's in a man. He knew him and that he'd been there a long time. He knows what's hidden. Jesus knows about this guy, what the hidden thing is. Like that woman at the well, like Nicodemus, there's an unspoken thing. You know, this is, this is the thing that we try to hide even from ourselves. Occasionally we feel it creep up and we turn our thoughts away because we just can't, we can't look at it. We can't engage the thought. It might be a fear. It might be a disappointment. A hope that we had that has made us sick. A hope deferred. And we turn away. But God has the rights to everything. He's got the rights to all of us. And he touches the deep thing, that deep thing of the heart, the hidden thing, the tender thing. And that's what he does with this man. He touches it. And he says, do you want to be healed? Well, he does, this man does what we do. When the Lord comes close to the tender thing in us, we reflect. We, we deflect, we turn away. We don't want the thing exposed. It's too tender. And so the man deflects. He says, it's impossible. Do you want to be healed? It's impossible. Literally, he says, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water's stirred up. And while I'm going, while I'm trying to get down there, another steps down before me. Maybe he used to have hope. You know, 36 years ago, maybe even 30 years ago, he had hope. Maybe back then there were friends. Maybe there were family. They would come and sit with him, you know, with hope, with expectation that this could be it. The water could be stirred today. And you're there with me. But he's alone now. How long has he been alone? But it is interesting that he immediately draws attention to his aloneness. I have no one. Do you want to be healed? It's impossible. I have no one. He points to that aloneness. You have to wonder how many times he, he, this happened. It's how many times he watched as the water stirred and, and he watched someone else go down. Somebody that had a family member. Somebody that had a friend. Or day after day, for year upon year, as he sat there alone, he looked and saw, well, they, they get visitors. We see this, we see this in nursing homes. I, 
I've had many conversations where that the bitterness of aloneness is choking a person. And it, it's strange that one of the regular themes that comes up is they are next door. She always gets visitors. He feels it. They might not be healed, but at least they're not alone. And envy. Envy took hold while the bitterness crept. And so in the decades of this misery, this real misery, this guy turned inward. He turned inward. Um, I'm reminded of a an old man that I used to visit with, and every time I saw him, he would rehearse the same wrongs done to him. The, the same stuff. I'd hear the same story of wrongs decades and decades ago, nursing those wrongs. Nursing those wrongs had, had become so habitual that they, had, they were at the heart of who he was. I am one who was wronged. That is who I am. I am the wronged one. And, and the story, I eventually noticed that in the telling, in the story itself, he had completely lost agency. The account. It was as if he, he had no will back when anything happened to him. He was a victim. He was a victim. This man, an invalid for 38 years, feels himself a victim. It's defined him. And this seems to be the deep thing that the Lord Jesus touches with his question. Do you want to be healed? Well, just as, just as with the official at Capernaum that we just talked about, just as with the Samaritan woman, the Lord Jesus offers to give far more than what could have been hoped for. To give far more than the thing expected. But in order to get there, in, in this case, he actually has to give the man what he thinks he hoped for. What he thought he wanted. Rise, take up your bed and walk. He's healed. He's healed after all those years. He's healed. It's, it's astounding. 38 years. He's healed. The hope that he had abandoned is realized. He gets the deferred hope. It was disappointed so long that it died. And then the strangest thing happens. He takes up his mat and he goes. As he's walking through Jerusalem, he's accosted by the Jewish leaders who say, you're not allowed to carry your mat. We don't know where he's heading, but the law, the, the tradition at the time was that uh, you could carry a cot with a person on it, but you couldn't carry the cot by itself. That's not based on anything in the law. There's a little line in Jeremiah about loading and unloading on the Sabbath. 
and they had extrapolated from that to make this rule. So it's a, it's a very tenuous sort of rule that they have. And he, he says, I, it's not my fault. This guy that healed me, he told me I had to carry this. Well, a little later, then, Jesus finds him in the temple complex and says, See, you're well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Now we get to Jesus' real offer. Now we get to it. The thing you've been nurturing, the malice, the envy, the hate, the bitterness that you've been chewing on and chewing on, turn from it. You're well. Look, man, you're well. There's no need to hold on to the old story. You thought, you thought that no one saw you. And this is for us. You thought that no one saw you. All those years when you leaned against the column, when you were alone, you thought nobody saw you. God saw you. You thought you were completely alone. You were not completely alone. The Lord was with you. Man, do you see it? In all the world, in all the world, the Father sent me to you today. Do you see how among the crowds of the blind and the lame and the paralyzed, there were loads of people there. I came to you. I healed you. See, he says, see, you are well. And at this point, we understand Jesus' question more fully. It's like suddenly it, can, it dawns on us. The question that Jesus asked the man was asked in three different tones simultaneously. Do you want to be healed? Your body. Do you want an end to this situation? He asks. And then further he asked, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be made well? Do you want to be whole? Like really healed. I mean really made well. And then in order to get to the deeper thing, in order to get to that, that the hidden thing, that corrupted, twisted self, the poisoned, the withered soul, in order to get to it, Jesus removed the obstacle. He removed the, the presenting issue, the body that didn't work. Because what he was really asking was, do you want to be healed? Do you want it? Do you want to change? Do you want to let go of your story? Do you want to let go of your terms? Now, until Jesus shows that he has the power to do this, the guy's blind to it. He's totally blind to this, to the deeper question. This is like Mary Magdalene and like Thomas. 
the, the disappointed expectations, the pain have blinded them to God's love. But now by healing the guy's body, Jesus has shown God's love. He's shown God's attention to him. And so when he finds him in the temple, he offers relationship. He gives a command. Sin no more. Now, throughout the Gospels, whenever Jesus gives a command, he's offering relationship. He's offering right relationship. It's an invitation to receive his word as authoritative. If I were to give you a command, uh, I'm trying to establish some kind of relationship in which I have authority and you do not. I don't do this. But Jesus, when he does it, he's offering, he's offering a person to receive him as the Lord. Every command is an opportunity to obey. And when a king, you think about it, when a king gives a command to a particular subject, it shows the king sees you as his. If I give you a command, that means I see you as mine, as, as in relationship with me. And so for this healed man, sin no more, and nothing worse happens to you, is an opportunity for the man to place his faith in Jesus. You have to appreciate the honesty of the Gospels. You might not like the Gospels, but you have to appreciate their honesty. Verse 15, the man went away. And tattletailed. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. Who healed you on the Sabbath? It was that guy. It's hard. This is hard. I think that is very hard. Sometimes God gives the rarest gifts, the most beautiful gifts to people. He bestows astonishing personal attention on someone. But it's not what he or she wanted. That's not the gift I wanted. Jesus restores this man's body. And he offered to restore his soul. He offered relationship with him. But in this bitterness at life, in bitterness at God, in the acceptance of victimhood, in his identity as a victim, he refused new life. He refused it. You know, it appears that he never even said thank you. Not even, cheers, mate. Thanks for the legs. Nothing. You know, this happens, this happens again and again all around us. It, it may be a struggle that you have. Things haven't gone as you wanted. They haven't worked out like you planned that they would. And the Lord stubbornly ignores your terms. You might have made bargains with him. If you would just do this for me, then I'll worship you. Then you'll show you're good. And so you may be blinded to his kindness. You may be blinded to his grace and to gifts held out to you. 
I just want to say, let's let us all, let's hear the word today. He is there. He is here. He's offering the best. He's offering the highest. But until we let go of our demands of how things were supposed to be, we're unable to receive his blessing. And sometimes we will run ourselves into the ground. We will destroy ourselves trying to get a thing we're not ready for or not fit for or trying to get a thing that would actually crush us. So if you are a Christian, we'll finish with this. The best thing you can do is to say thank you. Thank you to God. Make a daily practice of saying thank you for thanking Him for grace, for life, thanking Him for gifts that He's given you. And as you do so, as you say thank you, the veil is removed, the blindness is removed. And we can begin to see God as the kind one that He is. And the blindness of bitterness dissolves. Thank you. Thank you is how bitterness dissolves. Forgiveness. Thank you for being forgiven enables us to forgive people who have wronged us, have harmed us. And when we say thank you, we receive the blessing of sight, spiritual sight, to see Jesus where he is, to see Jesus beside us, to see Jesus with us, near us, offering a way that's far better, far better than our expectations. So living resurrection life, at the heart of it, thank you. Lord, we thank you for throwing open the way to life. And if you never did another thing for us, if you never gave some other, other thing that we want, some other comfort or kindness, if you never did another thing, you've opened life to us. And we thank you. And Lord, I pray that you would clear away the confusion, clear away the, the blindness that keeps us from seeing your goodness and your gifts. We pray in Jesus' name.